Now on Documentary on News Talk, producers Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle explore a global effort to improve brain health and reduce the impact of dementia in New Knowledge. The Global Brain Health Institute is a unique collaboration between researchers in Ireland and the US. It brings together practitioners from many different disciplines such as artists, psychologists, music therapists and neuroscientists, all dedicated to protecting the world's ageing populations from threats to brain health. The Institute brings together this mix of disciplines, professions, backgrounds, skills, perspectives and approaches to develop new, science-based solutions to the challenges presented by dementia. The mission of the Global Brain Health Institute is to reduce the scale and impact of dementia around the world by training and supporting a new generation of scientists and researchers working to improve the quality of life for people with dementia. In this program, we hear from Professor Ian Robertson, who is the co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute, and three researchers from the program who are working in very different ways to improve the lives of people living with dementia. Dementia is an umbrella term and refers to different conditions which all involve a gradual and long-term decrease in cognitive function in ways that are severe enough to affect everyday life. Dementia is rapidly increasing around the world. By 2050, the number of people living with dementia could triple, overwhelming families, partners, communities, public healthcare systems and economies. In Ireland, more than 55,000 people are living with dementia. Hello, I'm Ian Robertson. I'm co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin. The Global Brain Health Institute is, I think, literally unique in the world. It's a joint program between University of California, San Francisco and Trinity College Dublin. And so our job uh, between jointly running this program where we have 20 fellows each year coming here for a year, 20 here, 20 in San Francisco, meeting several times a week over uh, our telepresence suite here, all committed to finding applying knowledge to change practice at the policy level where possible across the world, particularly in lower middle income countries, to try and build brain health and thereby reduce the prevalence of dementia. We're not, we're not a primarily a research organisation, although all of our uh, faculty and, and academic staff in both centres do original research and have their own research teams, but they also we work around the fellows who are early to mid-career professionals from a whole range of backgrounds whose job it is to become expert in applying the science and applying knowledge to changing practice. Um, and so that means we have neurologists, we have music therapists, we have lawyers, we have architects, we have social scientists, we have health economists, we have journalists, we have artists, we have writers. And the, the aim here is to create uh, an awareness of brain health and an optimism about brain health through raising a public awareness as well as through disseminating knowledge. And so what we're, our hope is that oh, these people will be working to, to really change the climate of opinion 
and practice in dealing, both preventing dementia, but also dealing with it, because it is a Cinderella disorder. And if, you know, for example, there's only 10% of the research funding goes into dementia as goes into cancer. And our health systems are already, and social systems are already struggling to cope with existing levels. I mean, whole economies are going to suffer because of this, not to mention the individual human suffering of the carers and the people themselves. And so our, our aim is to have, you know, a thousand fellows in place across the globe so that as, as science throws up, and scholarship throws up new approaches, we will have in place a whole cohort of people who can disseminate them and, and who, who, who know about health economics, who know about policy change, who know about advocacy, who will be in a place to, to try and influence governments to produce science-informed uh, policies. Uh, so two of our fellows were architects, Irish architects based in the UK but about to move back to Ireland. And they, they identified a, a number of aspects of buildings, including hospital buildings, but also people's homes and nursing homes, that actually create some of the symptoms that we would otherwise attribute to dementia. So they, they, they've identified that we have very, very good regulations now in buildings for physical disability, but we don't have the same regulations for sensory and cognitive deficits. Uh, so, for example, they did an audit of, they've done an audit of an Irish town and shown in which ways that it kind of prevents the normal functioning of people with limited sensory and cognitive deficits. But even in a, a, a kind of modern hospital in Dublin, in the, in, in the, old, in, in the geriatric unit, they saw, they, they, they saw, for instance, there was an area of very, sh you know, they tend to be white surfaces, shiny, and they saw this really Reflect, highly reflective floor and to a person with failing sensory or cognitive deficits it looks like water or ice and so they become uh, slightly disoriented or frightened or, or, or appear to staff to be disoriented or for instance you know a door that you would like them to to use doesn't have any color contrast around it and so they have difficulty finding where they need to go the toilet for example and conversely, doors you don't want them to go out, you know, that you, you you can disguise them by making them flush with the and, and, and so 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 you're 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 preventing secondary disorientation, which actually can have biological effects in the brain. You know, a brain can keep functioning for many years if you can keep it uh, without certain stressors. So that's why, for instance, some older people can appear to be fine, and then they move house late in life and suddenly they, everything falls apart and they become disoriented and that's because our brains are attuned to the environment and the networks in our brains uh, are very very easily they're kind of fragile at a certain stage of you know of the disease and so you can uh, and so that can set in line a cascade of events in the way a broken hip can for an older person such that they never never come out so our, our architect fellows they are working with health services, with but also with the WHO and with architectural organisations to, to try across the globe to get introduce these guidelines for sensory and cognitive impairment, which you know if if 
we're not if, when that's done, will significantly reduce a proportion of the people who end up unnecessarily disoriented and with, if you like, their disorientation and their confusion being wrongly attributed entirely to their own heads, when in fact it's an interaction with the environment that's, that's remediable. So that's one example. Second example is we have a, a neurologist in, in Brazil working in poor areas of Brazil where there's high levels of illiteracy. And um, so her, her research, she's looking to see whether adult literacy training in people, training them to read and write, does that produce changes in the brain measured by MRI functional imaging? Does that produce changes, say, to the, between the, the connections between the memory centre of the hippocampus and other, and other parts of the brain? Does that produce the kinds of changes that would lead one to believe that that will, if you like, strengthen the resistance of the brain to dementia. So she's in the middle of that project, but if, if, she, if that proves to be true, then she can go to the Brazilian regional government in Brazil and say, who might otherwise say, yeah, what's the point in doing literacy training with poor people who are, you know, they don't need to read and write, there's no economic you know, necessity for them, it's going to be expensive to do. If she goes and says, well, actually, Another reason is you're, if you do this, you're going to reduce the rate of dementia, which is going to reduce the drag and you know, the terrible pressure on the health service, etc. So that becomes a research with a, a real policy edge uh, to it. And then we have another fellow who is um, looking at, a lawyer who's looking at the, the legal issues to do with pay, payment for care, for, for all the complexities uh, of that. So there's a huge amount of scholarship. We have a, a journalist from Brazil, who a wonderful young man, who um, gave up his undergraduate university degree to look after his grandmother, who was diagnosed with dementia. And he's since become a kind of best-selling author in Brazil, writing books about his experience with his granny, writing about dementia, make human humanizing the whole thing, because he felt that the whole encounter with the medical world was quite dehumanizing for his. So he, he is a wonderful advocate, and he's now studying health systems around the world to see if you could, to the extent to which you can improve communication among healthcare staff to, to, to humanize the experience uh, of, you know, of people with dementia and their families. So it's a question then of, of, of being optimistic about being able to control our own brains uh, by, uh, and also to, to mitigate the effects of disease by finding ways of interacting with people with dementia that activate parts of their brains that are still there but maybe just not accessible. Uh, and, and you know, music and dance. We have dancers, we have dancers also as, as fellow, a couple of dancers as fellows. Music and dance are great ways of, 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 doing, of doing that. Um, all, but also the, the, the whole attitude of, of um, humanizing and not, not buying into a, a kind of completely medicalized model where you just say, oh, that person's no longer there, that's, you know, that's dementia. There's always a way of interacting. There's always this common humanity in the emotional responses. The day-to-day -day memory might not be very good or might have gone completely, but the emotional memory still lingers on, still still is there. So they'll get that. They might not remember why they're feeling good, but they will remember the, they'll have the feel-good experience.
So I'm Catherine Jordan. I am a psychologist and I'm a pianist and I'm a senior Atlantic fellow at the Global Brain Health Institute. And in my research, I look at um, music, dementia and brain health. So my research takes two tangents. I look at how music, playing a musical instrument can keep your brain healthy as you get older. And I also look at music in terms of how it can help someone living with dementia and how music can um, evoke autobiographical memories and help with some of the behavioural symptoms of dementia, so help with anxiety and stress and different things like that. I remember when I was, it was during my master's degree, um, I was studying neuropsychology, a flatmate of mine showed me this video of a man, uh, it was went viral at the time, a man called Henry who was taking part in the Music and Memory Project in the States. And as part of this project, they went into care homes for people that were living with dementia. And um, on, they were given iPods, the people with dementia, and they listened to a song or a series of songs that were really meaningful to them. And this man, Henry, heard a song that he played as a jazz musician in his early life. And Henry, before this, was sitting, you know, in a seat and he wasn't very responsive. He wasn't talking to people around him. He wasn't engaged with anyone around him. He was just sitting by himself. And he heard this music and instantly he was transformed. He sat up in his seat. He became so much more alert. He engaged and he started chatting. He started, he started actually singing some of the song. And this is from a man who was sitting unresponsive to this man being completely awakened and just simply by listening to one song. And so I seen that and I was absolutely fascinated. And given my background in, in cognitive neuroscience, I was thinking there has to be something going on here. What's going on with Henry? Like what is, what's happening in his brain that he's having such a positive response to music? And so then um, I started my PhD and I started having more conversations about the impact music could have on people with dementia. Um, and that's when I joined the Global Brain Health Institute um, and we started, to, started a series of experiments and studies to actually look at this in more detail. There's kind of, I guess there's two tangents and two main goals I would have long term with my career and long term with my research. The first one is that you know, the area of music and dementia, in particular the benefits of music for dementia, is very much so under-researched. And we have very little understanding of actually why music is so beneficial for people that are living with dementia. And there's very little scientific evidence that actually supports it. But what we do have is a huge body of personal, personal anecdotes that support the use of music with dementia. And I've heard countless stories and from people who are living with dementia and their family members of the lifeline music offers to them. But what we don't have is the scientific evidence. And so it means that music isn't something that's commonly known about as a, as a treatment for people that are living with dementia for the behavioural symptoms. And people, I think as well, and generally in the public, have a very low awareness about the potential music can offer to their loved one with dementia. So part of my research, what I really want to do, is I want to address that gap in our knowledge in terms of our lack of understanding of what music actually changes our brain, how it helps someone with dementia. And then with that, what I want to do is I want to make sure that, to raise public awareness essentially, and music, you know, it's, it's freely available anyone can have it, it's right at our fingertips now, particularly with the advance in technology. So it's something that can be very easily added to someone's life with dementia and it can have such a huge benefit for their life with such a simple, a simple means. So it's something that I really would love to raise awareness about. And my second aspect of my work that I would love to have is specific to Ireland. So across the states and across and, and even in the UK and across Europe, there's multiple organisations that are offering music-based services for people living with dementia. 
An example is Playlist for Life in the UK. And what they do is they train people in care homes across or family members, whoever would like to take part, and they train them to become what they call music detectives. And what they do is they sit down with their loved one um, or, their, or their, whoever they're providing care with for and they design a playlist of personally meaningful music with them and essentially that becomes their treatment, um, their musical treatment for their symptoms of dementia. This isn't something that's available in Ireland and I think that one thing I would love to do is develop an awareness around becoming a music detective if you will and also ideally trying to lobby a few people together and develop a similar type of program in Ireland so that we would have the services in place to help people living with dementia. And I'll just give you an example of Playlist, Playlist for Life and the wonderful work they're doing. They've been so successful in implementing music-based services for people all across the UK that there's GPs now in Scotland that are prescribing music for people with dementia over drugs. So it's been such, they've had such a huge impact and it's something we can easily do in Ireland because I believe music is central to our Irish identity and our culture and it's something people have such a, a huge interest in and it's very much so a, lifelong, a lifeline for many people with dementia so I'd love to implement that in Ireland and something similar. I can go to one part of my research currently um, at the Global Brain Health Institute where we look at music and brain health. So we look at how playing a musical instrument can keep your brain healthy as you get older and ultimately um, delay the onset of dementia. So what happens when someone plays a musical instrument is that it engages multiple aspects of their brain. So our brain is split in two hemispheres. We have the left hemisphere and we have the right hemisphere. And so the left hemisphere is said to be responsible for logic and scientific endeavours. And the right hemisphere is said to be responsible for creativity and artistic endeavours. So what happens when someone plays a musical instrument is they need the analytical side of the left, the left hemisphere and they also need the right side of the brain, the right hemisphere, the creativity. And so what happens when someone plays a musical instrument is it activates both sides of the brain and it leads to an enlargement of the bridge that connects the two sides, which is called the corpus callosum. And so repeatedly playing a musical instrument in your early to midlife actually causes this bridge in, in the brain, this corpus callosum, to get bigger in a musician's brain. So playing a musical instrument in your early to midlife structurally changes the shape of your brain. Your brain gets bigger. And what we've found and what research has found is that in early to midlife, this also transfers to other aspects of cognition. So musicians who are actively playing a musical instrument, they have these structural changes, but they also show benefits in terms of their memory and various aspects of their memory and their cognitive abilities. So how fast they think, how, how their capacity of memory, how much they can remember, how fast their reaction times and, and their focus of attention is better for a musician um, who has played a musical instrument for, for a number of years. And so what we're, what we're exploring now at the Global Brain Health Institute is whether these advantages in early to midlife of playing a musical instrument are actually sustained in later life and whether all this greater activity that's happening in the brain when you play a musical instrument keeps your brain active, keeps it really healthy and so it means that because your brain is so active and healthy it can delay the onset of dementia. I have I've spent time with Playlists for Life and I've, 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 I've had the privilege of taking part in their training programme over there and I think it's something that something can, someone can really do quite easily themselves is develop this playlist and it's actually a very enjoyable task that you're really what you're doing is you're spending time with your loved one and you're sitting down with them and you're just having a chat about music say for instance music that if they were in a choir as a child a particular song that they liked if there was a song um, 
they, they had at the first dance of their wedding. So what you're doing is you're pulling out songs that are really, really specifically meaningful to them so that when they hear that song, they're instantly transported back to this particular time in their life that's really meaningful to them and evokes all these positive emotions. And you're trying to put together those songs into one playlist. That's essentially what you have to do. Music, particularly if music's very important to someone in, in their life, then absolutely music can, like as I said, is that lifeline for that person. And it brings them back to that person, you know, that they were previously. It, it really engages themselves with their former self and I think can be very powerful both for themselves and also their family members. One of the main reasons I applied to the Global Brain Health Institute was the multidisciplinary nature of the team. I think what's fundamental is um, breaking down boundaries and, and to really break down boundaries is the only way we can foster understanding. And I think it's, you know, it's commonplace, particularly in the field I work in, is that you work in a lab and you work in a lab with individuals who hold the same views as you have. Joining the Global Brain Health Institute really challenged that. Um, you know, we really broke those boundaries um, and we broke away from the, from the common mould that is in academia to work with people who share your views. And by working with people with contrasting views, you're challenging yourself and you're challenging your own views. And I think I've really, I've really benefited massively from working with a team from, from many different cultures, but also many different backgrounds and scientific um, backgrounds and beliefs they'd have. And we constantly challenge one another, but it's through those challenges that you actually open your mind a little bit. You see things from different perspectives and you think about things maybe you hadn't taken in consideration before. Um, so that's a, one of the major benefits of joining the Global Brain Health Institute. And it's fundamental to my understanding of dementia and it has really driven my research to date. You're listening to New Knowledge on Documentary on News Talk. My name is Wamboy Karanja. Uh, I'm, I studied psychology and I've done research on uh, perceptions of dementia in Kenya. And I, I worked with uh, informal caregivers, uh, in an older people care home. So it's people who are not trained in caregiving really, but then they just go on because it's the job they have. They're not highly educated. They just get the job to look after older, older people. So most caregivers are mostly uh, partners. So spouses of uh, people with dementia uh, care might fall on children of the people with dementia. But I worked with actually people who are employed to work in in a home run by, uh, uh, by Catholic uh, uh, sisters in Kenya. So they employ uh, young women to look after older people from different parts of Kenya. Most people with dementia are taken care of at home by their families. Uh, there are very few uh, nursing homes per se, or older people care homes. The one I worked in was mostly uh, supporting all the people who've been neglected by the community, so they just bring them in. In, in the Kenyan education system, the way you choose 
what to study. Uh, it's you, you give four options to the government of what you want to study. My first option, and my only options were three options of, on nutrition and dietetics, but my fourth option was psychology. And I got my fourth option, but it proved to be a really useful uh, part of like my life because uh, when I was doing my, my, my degree, my, my father was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And that's when like I realized the gap that exists uh, for people with dementia and we didn't have any knowledge. And just getting that diagnosis made me dig up a lot of knowledge to be useful for my family yeah, and for other people. I not only support my, my, uh, my family with knowledge and what to do, According to what I've learned, I've also volunteered with uh, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Organization in Kenya. And I've been a volunteer uh, since the organization was started in 2016. So it's uh, running support group meetings for caregivers and just helping them just go through the journey of caregiving and giving them information, giving them psychological support. We have a pilot project, and my, my project will be about brain health and education on brain health back home. Uh, when people develop uh, brain disorders, so it might be from traumatic brain injury, uh, from dementia, uh, epilepsy, when you don't get that explanation of, of what's going on, you'll give that meaning through what, you know, through what you think and some of the meaning we get back home is uh, spiritual causes of disease. So there's witchcraft, there's uh, family history of dowry payment. Our culture really values those things that have been done uh, for millions of, not millions, probably thousands of years. <laughs> so if, um, uh, if the family develops a sort of like a brain disorder or something, it will be blamed spiritually or culturally. So I think that filling that gap of lack of brain health education gives people meaning on what's going on and help them, helps them uh, cope better and understand what's going on. I'll be conducting research on actually what kind of education to provide because as a brain, talking about the brain is not something we do a lot. We don't talk about our own brains really. So I'm just trying to get about how people talk about the brain I'll be conducting research on how we talk about the brain and that will inform education resources that are tailored to Kenyan needs of, of brain health and education, if that makes sense. For me, it's fast dispelling myths. It's the myth that uh, dementia is caused by witchcraft. It's the myth that uh, people who develop epilepsy, it's because it's something that embedded in, in the spirit or in the culture. It's dispelling those myths that there's something going on in, in your physical body and you can seek help for that and you can seek support for that. So just dispelling those myths and getting people to understand what's going on in their brain so that they can seek help. It's the empowerment of the community to, to talk about their brains and the brain health aspect of life. It will be, I think, a selfish act for me to sit down in a room and design uh, education programs for brain health without really asking people what, what do you want to hear, what do you know, right? 
So it's going to the community and co-creating with them what they want to know about, you know, what they, they need to understand. So I, I'll be working with people in the communities and understanding how we talk about the brain in, in my own culture and then uh, using scientific knowledge that already exists and filling that gap and co-creating with that knowledge. There's a big interest and it's growing and I'm glad it's growing on public patient involvement in mostly medical research. But the aspect of action research whereby the the researcher uh, you know sheds their their privilege but then comes in as a co-creator of knowledge, right? So just making everyone you're working with a researcher, right? So every aspect of what you're creating, they are creating as well. And I think that brings about, it empowers people who will never have thought that their researchers to do research work, which I think is really important, but also opens up you know, people's mind and they realize that what they know is actually the right thing to know, right? And it's the right knowledge that's needed to, uh, uh, to inform education and policies and all that because uh, when I have worked researching before there there has been privileged voices if that makes sense like there are voices that I've always heard but then I think working at the levels of the community and getting the voices included in designing research um, disseminating research and writing it is, I mean I think I've not yet done that kind of work before but then I'm I mean the design part, and I think uh, that brings sort of like people see themselves in information. That makes sense, yeah. The voices of people with dementia, we should be advocates for people with dementia to advocate for themselves at some point, right? Uh, I mean, that's a challenge because most of the times when people with dementia, they get a diagnosis late, so they lose capacity to even consent and all that. But then if you can empower people uh, with dementia to be able to speak up for themselves, I think that's the best kind of advocacy we can have in dementia. And I can, I can speak up, but then I'll never, I've never had dementia, right? And I can speak about the experiences, but then I'm constantly talking about them. And, but I think the ideal situation is whereby this person with dementia speaks for themselves. So at this point, we are voices for people with dementia, right? And advocating for them. But then at some point, we'll have to give them that space to occupy them, that space and, and center them in the work. And I, and I mean, one of the most painful bits of my life was when uh, when my dad was diagnosed with dementia. It like it constantly like I constantly ask what what will, will he want and I try to speak that uh, wonder what he wanted. But then there's a big gap that was lost between him finding you know starting to lose his memory to when he got a diagnosis. A big gap for him to advocate for himself for what he wants for. Um, how he wants to design his life when he loses capacity. Yeah, so.
come from Africa and mostly like our ways of knowing are at the very bottom of the hierarchies of knowledge, right? And I would like to see research that values models that are not Western models, right? Where we go speak to people like me where I come from and the way we know about dementia is also valued. Uh, is also valued and is also even though sometimes it's causing harm it's investigated and recorded for the archive that this is how people knew about dementia before we introduced dementia as a brain health illness so i would like to see different ways of knowing in different parts of the world as anything scientific models of knowing the biomedical model of knowing dementia will eventually probably take over but then what do people know right now Right? When there's low awareness of dementia, how are people talking about dementia? I know there's good care being provided for people with dementia in, in places where people don't call it dementia, right? How are they doing that? So it's just such kinds of knowing being valued alongside their medical models of dementia. I'm David Lockery. I'm a research psychologist. I'm focused on the, the relationship between uh, hearing loss and uh, changes in cognition and interested in seeing if there is a potential association between age-related hearing loss and uh, cognitive decline and dementia. I, uh, I did my PhD here in Trinity College uh, with uh, Brian Lawler and then uh, afterwards I started a fellowship in the Global Brain Health Institute. So that's where I am at the moment. Initially I didn't I didn't have a plan to go into research, but um, I, I, was, I was born with a hearing loss. And uh, I did my undergraduate degree here in Trinity in psychology. And then afterwards, I did a uh, research internship here in the Institute of Neuroscience in Trinity. And I became very interested in cognitive aging. And when people, uh, certain researchers, um, one researcher in Johns Hopkins uh, reported that there may be an association between uh, hearing loss and uh, change in cognition and possibly hearing loss and dementia. I find it fascinating. And I started reading more of the literature on it and how there may be all sorts of potential mechanisms linking hearing loss with dementia. So. I, ju I just became fascinated with that, and I decided to go for a PhD. So th that's how I got into this line of work. <laughs> so, so my w work specifically is focused on looking at differences in cognitive function with hearing loss. So I'm very interested in seeing whether a difference in cognitive function, such as attention or memory with hearing loss, and then maybe that would give us an idea into what the relationship is between hearing loss and uh, cognitive decline or dementia. So for right now, in uh, say epidemiological studies, where you're looking at uh, cohorts of a few thousand people, we, we tend to find an association between hearing loss and dementia and uh, cognitive impairment, but we're not exactly sure what the association is. So, for example, it could be that there could be another factor that causes both hearing loss and dementia, for, for example, such as uh, arteriosclerosis, like vascular factors, or it could be that uh, hearing loss directly uh, affects cognition. 
So uh, the key the key to understanding that is really just try and get more information. There have been a few um, neuroimaging studies that have found that hearing loss is associated with uh, differences in the brain uh, specific to um, auditory processing, but also in uh, whole brain size and in areas of the brain associated with memory. And then there have also been uh, a very, very small number of intervention studies that have found that um, uh, hearing aids and uh, co cochlear implants can uh, help uh, maintain or improve cognitive function. But uh, the, the results in those can be quite mixed. Other studies I've looked for at this particular relationship have found no benefit at all. So it's very, very nebulous at the moment. So really the key right now is just to get more information on that relationship. So like I say, it could be that there's another factor that causes both hearing loss and cognitive decline, or it could be that hearing loss directly causes cognitive decline through, say, for example, changes in the brain, or when people have a hearing loss, they have to work harder mentally to follow compensation so that maybe that diverts resources away from other parts of the brain so it really is uh, right now it's a little bit of a mystery it's a little bit of a puzzle I suppose the first uh, impact is just to raise awareness of hearing loss in general. So one of the things is that uh, hearing loss is, is highly prevalent among uh, adults over the age of 65. So the World Health Organization estimates that one in three older adults has hearing loss, a disabling hearing loss. Or, or say, for example, in the US, it's estimated that um, half of older adults have a clinically meaningful hearing loss. But the problem is that um, it seems that a very small portion of people who benefit from intervention actually get, get safe hearing aids, for example. So one of the things is just to raise awareness that, um, that, that hearing loss is quite prevalent and that a lot of people would benefit from treatment, possibly. So the second impact w would be I would like to, uh, the, the main benefit would be to, for science. So I would like to just to try and uncover why is, is this relationship between hearing loss and differences in cognition. Right now, um, there's a great deal of research going on in dementia. It's still, um, it's still a thing that, in a sense, we're trying to catch up. So, for example, um, dementia healthcare costs more than uh, stroke, heart disease, and uh, cancers combined. So the impact of dementia was quite, quite it's quite big, it's quite significant. Um, it's expected to uh, affect 130 million, I think, by 2050. And the cost by then will be about 2 trillion a year. So like that's the size of the uh, UK economy. You know, it's, it's a massive, massive impact. So at the moment, in a sense, we're trying to catch up with, uh, say, cancers and strokes in terms of research. Uh, and we're trying to understand more about these disease. A very, very important paper that came out in 2017, the Lancet Commission looked at nine potentially modifiable risk factors, and they estimated that uh, effective management of those risk factors could prevent one in three cases of dementia. But uh, it's, 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 it's a potentially modifiable risk factor, so we need more work to see will intervening those factors uh, have this outcome. So actually the interesting thing was that, yeah, um, the biggest 
and that study, the biggest estimate was for hearing loss. Then uh, other risk factors would be, say, for example, um, exercise, uh, hypertension, uh, education, depression. So they're the key things. But um, one general advice, for example, would be what's good for the heart, it's good for the brain. So it's about maintaining a healthy lifestyle overall. One of the key barriers for people who are trying to get a hearing aid would be uh, the cost of it. The cost can be quite prohibitive. Uh, but in the United States, for example, they um, recently launched the uh, Health Care Act to try and uh, deregulate de the selling of hearing aids so that these hearing aids can now be sold over the counter. Let's hope that in the longer term that will um, allow, for, uh, allow for hearing aids to become cheaper. So right now, production of hearing aids doesn't necessarily meet the potential demand, but the key key is to raise awareness of that. So uh, right now, say in Ireland, for example, um, as I understand it, uh, it, it, people have to pay a certain cost. They, they can get a certain amount back in tax, but it would be beneficial if people were more aware of hearing, hearing loss and maybe the potential impact that it could have. I, I, as I said before, that we don't fully understand the relationship between hearing loss and cognition and ch changes in cognition. So um, the, the key thing for me is just trying to get as much information on it and trying to untangle that relationship. So f for me, that it's, like, um, it's like a mystery or a puzzle and trying to uh, solve it. <laughs> Cog cognition, um, you can break it down to different cognitive functions. So like, say, for example, attention, but being able to sustain attention in one thing. Uh, memory, say, uh, for example, um, but being able to remember things over a longer period of time. Uh, so for one of the area symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is that people uh, have uh, an inability to remember new information. But um, it, as it relates to hearing loss, some very interesting studies have found that um, when, when people lose their hearing, that they have to pay more attention to speech. That makes sense. But um, when you look at the brain, what's going on in the brain at the time, as they're listening to speech, compared to, say, someone without a hearing loss, that the, uh, the parts of the brain that are more active within the auditory cortex with, with people without a hearing loss become less active with the hearing loss, and that the frontal parts of the brain become more active. So the frontal parts of the brain would uh, classically be associated with working memory, with attention. So also some behavioral studies have found that people with a hearing loss, if, um, if you give them some information, if you speak information to them, they have to pay more attention to uh, perceive that information. But that, because the resources are going to th those parts of the brain, it maybe it's making it harder for them to recall that information later. So because they're paying more attention to the information, the, the ironic thing is that they have less resources in the brain to encode that information into memory. So that's sort of maybe one of the potential mechanisms that uh, links hearing loss with uh, poor cognition in the longer term. So, so people with a hearing loss, um, myself for example, I was born, born with a hearing loss, I have a profound hearing loss, so I'm very reliant on lip reading. So, and particularly for, say, um, say people with a hearing loss, we rely more on our minds 
to understand what people are saying. So you can imagine that for someone um, who has a cognitive impairment or dementia, uh, how challenging it must be to try and follow the conversation. So as I say, um, if, if that is an issue, you know, just, just be more aware of that. Um, ways to help people in that situation is when you're speaking to them, speak face to face so that they can lip read, make sure that there's good lighting in the room. Just, just, um, and also ways to reduce background noise. Dementia is it's a huge, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very um, heartbreaking thing for people to have. It's, um, you know, it's happened in my own family and my wife's family. And it's, you know, if, if it was something that was striking a much younger person, it would, it would, it would achieve a much greater impact because it more affects older people. There's a tendency for us to think, oh, that's just a part, normal part of aging. It's not a normal part of aging. It's correlated with aging, but it's a potentially um, remediable condition, at least in the future. At the moment, it's, it's, it's palliative once you have the disease. But the human being is still in there, and it's, 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 I, I'm a great optimist with the human brain. I'm, I'm, I'm a great uh, enemy of the curse of genetic fatalism, which I think is a scientifically wrong but it's also hugely damaging. Of course there are genetic influences in our behaviour and some of them are quite strong but there's always plasticity and there's always a capacity for change and we, we need to harness that capacity uh, and then it's such a pressing pressing challenge for the whole world you know all, possibly almost as great as climate change the, the, the trebling of the rates of dementia we're going to see that is, it's, it's a big challenge to, 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 to face up to, and that, that's very invigorating to have such a challenge. But finally, immediately, it's just working with these fantastic colleagues, like my colleague Brian Lawler, who's just a, you know, a hero of, of dementia in, in, in Ireland, a fantastic guy, and um, other colleagues here, and, and, and these amazing fellows from across the world. New Knowledge was produced by Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.